You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are ready. Father, mold us and make us. Have thine own way. Do what you will with us through your word, for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good evening. If I haven't met you, I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you're with us. We are now a few weeks in the Gospel of John. So it's been fun already, and I'm really looking forward to beginning to get into the narrative with you all. Uh, Well, the year was 2012, and I was naive and innocent. I don't remember how I first saw it. Probably I was just scrolling through my Twitter feed one afternoon when a video popped up, and then over the next few days it began to go viral. There's a man at a park in Montreal, and he's videoing a royal eagle circling over, and then the royal eagle is circling and then begins to dive and then comes down and picks up what appears to be about an 18-month-old toddler by his jacket, his winter jacket, and carries him three or four feet, and then the child like slips out of the, out of the eagle's grasp. And the man, like doing what any sane human does, he like, the video like goes to the grass as he's running up to check on the child and then he finally gets there and sees the, this little boy's face and he's just sitting there like completely oblivious to what just happened. He's completely fine. And everyone was talking about it. Do you guys remember this video? Do you, did, no one? 
Well, all right, all right, yeah, there's a few of you, okay. Uh, the internet was going crazy for a few days with this royal eagle in Canada. But then about a week later, this Canadian animation company releases a press release saying that the video was a fake and they had animated the entire thing. Uh, but it looks so real, right? Uh, my, and my world was shattered, shattered. Seemingly overnight, I had become internet skeptical. Uh, Snopes had always been a thing on the internet, right? Like the place you go to find out if something is real. But now, after that video, rather than assuming that everything was real until Snopes discredited it, now I just assumed that everything was fake until Snopes could prove it true, right? Singh was no longer believing. But this is not how it's always been. Skepticism and cynicism are as old as humanity, but generally people could pretty much trust what they saw. And in our text today, Jesus encounters varying levels of initial faith. There's quick and eager faith, and then cynical and skeptical disbelief. But with both kinds of people, Jesus invites all to come and see for themselves. So we'll look at John 1, 39 through 51 in two sections this evening, that Jesus is for the eager, but Jesus is also for the skeptical. And it's been my prayer for you all this week as I've been going through this text, that as Jesus invites you to come and see for yourself, wherever you are, uh, that you might actually see him tonight. So first of all, Jesus for the eager. Verse 35 and 36 again, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So right off the bat, we transition from our text last week as the narrative transitions from John the Baptist to Jesus. Last week, Clint said that John the Baptist is like this professional wrestler announcer, right? Like he's, he's in there announcing the main event, but very clearly saying, I'm not the main event. The main event is coming. I'm the hype man. I'm getting everyone prepared and excited. He's drawing everyone to the edge of their seat, that they might be craning their neck to see who the main event might be and what he will be like. So last week, John the Baptist was pointing people to Jesus, the Lamb of God, but here, John is really going to put his money where his mouth is. Two of John's disciples are here with John, and again, Jesus comes, and John again says, behold, the Lamb of God, and then two guys who presumably John's been grooming for a couple of years. He likely thinks as these two guys as children in the faith. And then Jesus walks by, John says, there's the main event, and they're like, all right, sweet, we're out, we're, we're gone. Like, maybe without even a goodbye. That's it. They're just gone. No other commentary. Maybe they looked at each other and they just dropped what they had. They followed Jesus. No thanks for your time and investment, like Mr. The Baptist. Just gotta go. We're gone. We're out of here. And knowing John's message, he likely would have been like, yes, go. Stay not one second longer. Follow him. Be gone. He's, he's the one I've been preparing you for. He's like a parent who's been preparing this child for 18 years to leave the home and go start your new life. Undoubtedly sad, but yes, get out of here. Follow him. 
And just like that, John the Baptist just kind of dissolves away. Why? Because he's unimportant? No, but because he's done his job. His job is over. He's prepared his people for the coming one, the Lamb of God, and now he's gone. John the Baptist will appear one more time in chapter 3, but basically just to appear one more time to say that Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And that, isn't that what's happening here? This is a good question for us. Are, are we as content as John the Baptist to just kind of fade into obscurity? I think as Americans, we're trying really hard to make a name for ourselves and not be forgotten. But John the Baptist, I think, is just content to be here, gone, forgotten. But so that Christ is present and always remembered. Are we content to be the kind of people that might decrease, that might slowly step back out of the spotlight so that Christ might be fully in the spotlight, that our lives are about pointing to him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. John the Baptist certainly is, and he's totally all right. Not one second of remorse or regret or loss that these two disciples are gone. These two guys, merely based on what John the Baptist has said about him, Here's the Lamb of God, and they're like, okay, then I guess we'll follow him. They start following him, and then it appears Jesus is kind of just walking down the road, and he, like, maybe hears some footsteps, and he looks back, and he's like, hey, what do you guys want? I mean, that's what he says, right? He turns around, verse 38, he basically asks them, asks them what do you guys want? What are you seeking? To which they call him a teacher, and they want to know where he's staying. It appears they want to be with him. They want to learn from him. And maybe it seems kind of short and discourteous. Like, hey, what do you guys want? But this is actually a really insightful question that Jesus asks them. And it's good for us to consider as well. What are you seeking? What do you want out of Jesus? What do you, why have you come to him? Have you come to him to have your sins forgiven? Do you want to have him make your life a bit more stable? happier, take away all of the difficult and uncomfortable things in your life? You've always kind of been interested in his teaching. You're somewhat aware of the Bible. And so you want to follow him to maybe find out a bit more of what he has to say. Maybe some of your friends and family are following Jesus, and you just assume that you should too, or that you think that because they follow Jesus and you share the same last name, that that means you're following Jesus. But actually, if we're honest with ourselves, if you consider Jesus looking backwards over his shoulder, making eye contact at you, and he asks you, what do you want? If you're honest, how would you answer the question? If what we want is just a list of demands, a list of demands that doesn't recognize him as the pre-existent word of God made flesh to tabernacle and dwell among us, to take away our sins, to give us life with the Father through the Spirit, there, then we're just going to inevitably get angry and frustrated when he doesn't meet what we want from him, when he doesn't meet our demands. Perhaps, though, at this point, you, you don't really know what you want from Jesus. You're curious, you're interested, but like these two disciples, you just know that I'm not quite sure, but I just want to follow him. 
You're eager to learn, you're eager to learn from him. And Jesus is more than willing at this point in your life, more than willing to have you follow, to have you learn, to have you watch him. But he's kind of cryptic about it. He doesn't stop and tell you or, or even them everything about himself quite yet. When they ask him where he's staying, he just says, why don't you come and find out? Just come and see. Verse 39, come and you will see. He acknowledges their eagerness with an invitation to find out more. And the second half of that verse, I think, is kind of interesting. They, they follow him to where he's staying and then stay with him for the rest of the day because it was the 10th hour, we read. It was, it was 4 o'clock, which is a pretty specific detail, which seems to indicate that this is an eyewitness account. And perhaps not certainly, but perhaps verse 40 tells us who the eyewitness is. Only one of the disciples is named Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, but we know that there are two following, right? Commentators throughout the centuries have wondered if the reason that the other one isn't named is because the other is actually John, the gospel writer himself. John is later going to euphemistically refer him to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. So perhaps like John the Baptist, John the Evangelist, this gospel writer, doesn't want to distract even one ounce from Jesus and put the attention on himself. But he's just relaying here this indelibly uh, etched detail of the day that he first met Jesus. We followed him and we went into the house and we, we, it was about four o'clock. He's just remembering that day that I began to first follow Jesus. And when they get to the house where he is staying, the very first thing that Andrew does is to go find his brother, Simon. And he tells Simon that they found the Messiah. Messiah, meaning the anointed one, the expected royal son of David who would come to deliver Israel. As the disciples will continue to show throughout this gospel that they themselves don't properly understand who the Messiah would be and just how he would deliver his people, Andrew didn't really know what he was saying about who he was bringing Simon to come see. But nevertheless, in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. And in that moment, Andrew found out what Jesus' followers would come to discover for themselves for the next 2,000 years. That the clearest way for someone to meet, know, and understand Jesus will always come from a personal invitation from a friend. And Andrew is always doing this. Always. Throughout the Gospels, Andrew just can't help himself. He's always bringing people to Jesus. Nearly every time we see him, it's because any gospel writer is just telling us how Andrew's bringing people to Jesus. This is helpful for us. If, if what Clint pointed out last week is true from John the Baptist's preaching, that sin, that hell, that the darkness is actual reality, and that there is a God in heaven who has sent his Son into that darkness to save us from that sin— and then to adopt us as sons and daughters? Our response ought to be like Andrew's with those in our life. Come and see. Come see this Jesus. I found the Messiah. Come and see him. So this is a good question for us. Who in your life needs to see Jesus? Needs to believe? Like names. Silently make a list of names, right? Who in your life needs to see Jesus and believe him? How might you invite them to come and see? Perhaps you can just take the first step in friendship and invite them over for dinner. Perhaps 
They'd will, be willing um, to come and think through the Gospel of John on a Sunday service, maybe read through it with you throughout the week. Perhaps they'd be even willing for some free food and coffee two weeks from tonight and our one-year anniversary out in the parking lot. Maybe they won't come for Jesus, but they'll come for a free sandwich. Perhaps you can just ask a neighbor if there's anything that you can pray for them about. Perhaps you can, like, Patrick Gozier does, like, every day of his life, seemingly. You can just say to one of your coworkers, man, can I just tell you what I learned at church last night? It was great. Or, you'll never believe what I read in the Bible this morning. Can I tell you about it? And most people are like, uh, okay, sure. And then who knows what kind of conversation might follow. Nevertheless, it appears Simon is just as eager as his brother Andrew and presumably John were to see Jesus and then to follow him. The narrative just kind of trucks along. It just keeps moving. And Simon, seemingly without delay, walks in to meet Jesus. Seeing has been a theme so far, and it will continue to be for the rest of the chapter, and it is here as well. In the other gospel accounts, the changing of Simon's name actually has more to do with what that means for Simon or for Peter. But here it has more to do with the Jesus who sees. Verse 42, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, the Aramaic word for rock. So John then gives us this little parenthetical explainer. He says, which means Peter, the Greek word Petros for rock. So Jesus lays eyes on Simon and in the first instant knows him, knows him. He doesn't just see him, he sees through him. And how does Jesus know that Simon's father's name is John? How does Jesus know that as fickle and as passionate as Simon currently is, that he will become an immovable and steadfast rock? How does he know both the present, the past, and the future of Simon's life? Because Jesus, the word made flesh, created Simon. Verse 3 of this chapter, all things were made through him. Nothing that exists in this world was not made through, except from through Jesus' creative power, including Simon. Like, mind blown, right? Jesus sees Simon, but he's also claiming authority over Simon. Naming someone is always a move of authority, right? When you name your children, you do so because you have the authority to do so. The doctor or the midwife doesn't get to name the baby. They don't have the authority. The parents do. And name changes are even more so. If I came up to you and said, Hey, Skylar, you shall now from this day be known as Herbert. Uh, he would say, uh, how about no? Uh, uh, my name is Skylar. You don't have that authority to change my name. For Jesus to see through this guy, to know him, to rename him, and then for everyone in the room to just be cool with it is incredible. These three guys are quick and eager to submit to Jesus and to follow him. And we all know people who have heard, who have believed, who have followed quickly or even immediately the first time they heard the gospel, they responded and believed and followed Christ. 
But maybe Andrew, John, maybe Peter, they're all just a little bit gullible, right? Maybe they just want to believe in magic tricks. And Jesus likes these kinds of unthinking idiots. Please, yes, come along and follow me. You guys are morons, so we'll just, you guys are eating whatever I'll give you. Maybe he likes those folks, but how is Jesus going to respond with the skeptical, those who are not quite as quick, quick to follow him? So Jesus shows that he is for them as well, for the skeptical. In verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So like Andrew, John, and Peter, all it takes is an invitation for Philip, and he's in. He's convinced that Jesus is the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. And like everyone else in this chapter, the first thing he does is to go find friends who need to hear about Jesus. But for the first time in this chapter, we see a response that isn't one of quick and full and ready and eager faith and following. Like the others, Nathaniel's from the small town of Bethsaida, which is a little bit larger than Nazareth, but not by much. And likely what's going on here is small town rivalry stuff. Like whenever you hear Clint talk about someone from Artesia, because he's from Clovis, with disdain. Even though, don't tell him or people from Artesia or from Clovis this, but people from Clovis and Artesia are the same exact person. (laughs) But we all do this though, right? And not just if you're from a small town. Big city folks often look down their noses at folks from small towns because they aren't as educated maybe or they don't shop at Trader Joe's. Small town folks can too quickly assume that all big city folks are worldly and don't care about their families. And there's something dark and twisted about the human heart that just naturally wants to label and identify people as the other. Not like me. And then to draw hard lines to differentiate ourselves as superior over the other. Be it lines of race, lines of income, increasingly more and more in America with politics. We can't just all be Americans, but we have to be the right Americans. And then they're all the, they're the liberals out there. Or we have to be the right Americans, and then there are the stupid Republicans. You have to read the right blogs, the right news sources, the right books. You have to listen to the right music. Otherwise, you're an idiot and perhaps even evil. Seriously, we love to do this, to find those who we disagree with, find ourselves in our pride superior than them, and then just roll our eyes at the other. And while it seems more and more like lines are being more starkly drawn to identify yourself as right so we can roll our eyes. Nathaniel shows that this is actually an age-old problem. There ain't no way that the Messiah could come from old Nazareth. You guys are idiots to think that he wouldn't be one of us. 
And this, by, by the way, I think is why we make all of our pictures of Jesus to look like us. Whatever our culture, the culture has a picture of Jesus to look like them. Typically in America, Jesus is European. He's white. He's beautiful. When in actuality, he was Semitic, dark-skinned, almost undoubtedly under five feet tall, and nothing, nothing attractive about him. Not beautiful and white and European, but likely quite ugly in our estimation. Nevertheless, Philip isn't deterred by a bit of Nathaniel's eye-rolling against his gullible friends that would follow this Nazarene. Philip is LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow. He says, but don't take my word for it. He says, look, Nathaniel, I'm not asking you to blindly accept something that may or may not be true. Into verse 46, picking up on the theme we've been tracing, come and see. See for yourself. Consider the evidence. Be rational and reasonable, and then just maybe see what happens. So Nathaniel goes, perhaps begrudgingly, just doing Philip a favor to get him off his case. In verse 47, Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Philip and Nathanael are walking down the road, went up along the way, this small town, uneducated, dirty Nazarene, yells up to him and says, Behold, you, you're an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And can you imagine what Nathaniel must be thinking at this point? Who is this guy? I don't know him. Who does he think he is, thinking he knows me? Seriously, it's like, if I've never met you, there are a few of you that I haven't met this evening, and you're trying to, like, subtly and maybe, maybe not make too much eye contact as you're walking out the door, and I say, you, college student, in whom there is no anxiety at all. You're like, who are you? You don't know me. We've never met. Well, Jesus is doing exactly what he did with Peter. He sees through Nathaniel. He knows him immediately because he created him. Jesus knows that while he tends toward eye-rolling, Nathaniel's a dude that's willing to honestly check out things for himself. He's a guy without ill motives or thoughts to harm others. In fact, Jesus is playing on words, and he's playing on the actual Bible here. Now knowing Jesus, or Genesis, like we do, Genesis, or Jesus is saying, here is one, Nathaniel, here's one from Israel, the man, the man who got his name changed while he was wrestling this angelic being by the river. Here's one from Israel who is not a deceiver, who is not of Jacob. He's actually saying, behold, here is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. He's a new identity guy. He's an Israel guy. He's not an old identity Jacob deceit kind of a guy. But Nathaniel's taken aback, if not a little bothered. He says, how do you know me? In verse 48, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. If we're just reading through this for the first time, you're like, well, that was sudden, right? <laughs> a bit unexpected. All he, 
all he did was he was walking down the road and maybe I was over this fig tree over here and he saw me and then that's all it takes for me to now trust and follow him. But I think something more is going on here. It's not just visible sight that Jesus sees. We have no idea what was going on under this fig tree, but it was seemingly significant enough that Nathaniel immediately believes. Perhaps Nathaniel's having an all-out crisis of faith. He's praying under the, the fig tree, something like, Lord, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Perhaps Nathaniel is thinking sinfully, impurely. Perhaps he's meditating through like Psalm 119 or something. He's praising the goodness of God. He's overwhelmed in joy and in faith. We don't know. But incidentally, I think this is further evidence for this being an eyewitness account. If this was somebody who's just making up this thing to start a new religion or something, I think he would make the story a little bit better than it actually was. But Nathaniel is shaken to the core that Jesus didn't just know he was there, but that he saw him. He saw in him, through him. And the reality that Jesus sees changes everything about our life, doesn't it? Not just in a Santa Claus is coming to town, kind of like he sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake, so be good, for goodness sake, kind of a way. Don't screw up, everyone, because he's watching. But to go back to the light and darkness theme, begun in the beginning of chapter one, that we like the darkness. We tend to think that what we do, what we love, what we think can't be seen by others, will never be found out, won't ever have any consequences, but that just isn't true. God sees not just our every action, whether honoring him or not honoring him, but even in the heart and the motives behind those actions. And Jesus has come to bring light to the darkness, to expose the darkness, not to just expose you and embarrass you, but as we'll see in a minute, to bring life from the darkness, that we won't love the light unless we see the darkness of the darkness. To allow us to live not only with forgiveness for our sin, but with finally a, a clean conscience. God sees not just our ill motives, but everything about us. And for some of you, the fact that Jesus sees is an exposing and a nerve-wracking thing. But this was enough for Nathaniel to believe, knowing that he was not the ultimate authority in the universe, or like the ultimate arbiter of meaning. Actually being confronted with someone higher than himself was a good thing, that there's someone greater than him who created him, who knows him, who holds him to account. So friend, if, if you're not a Christian, your conscience is a real and powerful thing. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore the sin in your heart, the ways in which you are not loving others, the ways in which you know you are living selfishly. Don't flee from the light, but welcome it for your good, as painful as it actually might be for the first time to admit that there is shortcoming, that there is selfishness, that there is even evil in our heart. The fact that Jesus sees is a good thing, that he sees and knows and wants to save you from yourself. But for others of you, the fact that Jesus sees is actually an, 
enormously comforting thing. For those of you struggling now in periods of doubt, in pain or in sickness, in bitterness or in worry or addiction or anger, those of you struggling through financial hardship or unemployment, struggle with parenting, infertility, Jesus sees. He's not oblivious or blind. He knows not just your circumstances, but he sees through you. He knows you into your very hopes, your fears, your insecurities, because he created you. For those who, like John reminded us in verse 12, for those he gave the right to become children of God, he knows, he sees, and he loves you as his child. This is a comforting, comforting thing for we Christians to know that Jesus sees and he knows But he invites all of us, eager or skeptical, to then come and see him, to come and see for ourselves. So in verse 50, Jesus answered Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I kind of always imagine Jesus kind of chuckling as he answered Nathaniel. Nathaniel responds in faith and calls Jesus the Son of God, and Jesus says, seriously? Like, that's it? That's all it took? That I saw you? That I saw your heart? Brother, just wait. You, don't, you haven't seen anything yet. And if Jacob was already in view in this chapter, the story, Jacob's story, comes on full display here when Jesus says, yeah, like everybody, you, you know that time that's one of the most important times in our history as Jews, the time that Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau and he saw the ladder that connected heaven and earth, when it was revealed to Jacob that there is far more going on than he can see or know, that there is access to God through covenant. You know that time? Everybody remember? Well, it was all about me. You know why? Because I'm the ladder. I'm the ladder on which the angels were ascending and descending. I'm the ladder now. I am the connection between heaven and earth. I am fully God. I am fully man through my life and my coming death and resurrection. I am the way to have access to God through covenant. It's me. You're impressed by my seeing you under the fig tree? Wait. Hang on, man. Buckle up and just follow me. There is far more going on in heaven and on earth through me and in my kingdom than you can see or even begin to imagine, Nathaniel. You're about to see some crazy stuff. Even beginning next week, in the beginning of chapter two, you're going to see some crazy stuff, but it's all going to culminate in my death on the cross, in my resurrection, forgiveness of your sins. All of this is going somewhere, so hang in there. Jesus knows, he sees all, but he invites all of us, wherever we are, whatever level of faith we may have, to come and to see. And I'm persuaded that 
Jesus is not some animated royal eagle, this elaborate ruse to dupe gullible people, but that Jesus is the very creator God of the universe. He has lived for us to give us his righteousness. He has died for us to take our unrighteousness. And he has been raised to new life that we might have new life shared with him. And if all that's true, and that he sees and he knows and he loves us, then we ought to take him at his word. Follow him, even in these first uncertain steps of faith like these disciples. So be honest with him. Be honest with others about your doubts, about your uncertainties. But be honest enough that when confronted with reality, you'll actually turn and see him. You will follow him in love and obedience like these brothers that we will be with in heaven one day with praising our Lord forever when our faith is made sight. Let's ask for his help now and look forward to that day. Our Father, we pray that you would, as we've been praying for several weeks, that you would continue to fill our vision, that you would give us a greater vision of Christ, that we might see him more clearly, that we might look full on his wonderful face, and that by seeing him, we might love him, that we might follow him, that we might know that as we see him, he sees us. And thus we can follow him despite our doubt. We can follow him despite our fear, our insecurity, our anxiety, even in spite of our sin. Father, increase our vision that the glory of Christ might eclipse any temptation towards sin, any temptation to stop following him, but that you would fill our hearts and our eyes and our minds and our souls with more of yourself through him, by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.